0: Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box Welcome to July's Outside the Box I am joined, as ever, by Mickey Oh, hello there Now Jen's not here to be outraged By whatever weird thing you say when I say hello Are you just not bothering? Yeah, I only did it to piss Jen off (laughs) Uh, It worked It definitely worked So yeah loads of stuff to talk about this month again so we've got quite the list to get through so coming up we'll be talking about Talking Heads, Staged, The Sinner, The Salisbury Poisonings and a couple of documentaries Roll Red Roll and Athlete A which are both on Netflix. Should we start on the BBC because the BBC has been worth its licence fee I think in the last couple of Weeks. not to say it isn't always
1: not according to twitter hannah and obviously well, twitter is right
0: <laughs> should we start with talking heads uh have you managed to watch any of the talking heads Mick?
1: i have not but i've seen a bit of a, a hoo-ha about the sarah lancashire one and i wondered if you were going to talk
0: about that funnily enough i've also seen a bit of what looked like hoo-ha but it's actually just a headline designed to make you click Oh, clickbait Story in the Sun today about the one that must have been on this week, which is Playing Sandwiches, which is Lucian Mazumatis, which is about paedophilia. And the headline says, viewers outraged at storyline about paedophilia. Now, to be clear, this isn't new. It was originally played by David Hague in the 90s, because Talking Heads, there were a bunch that were released in the 80s, a bunch that were released in the 90s, and now... Several have been re-recorded and then a couple of new ones have been released. There are 12 in this series. But actually, when I clicked on that story, it was people saying, oh, my God, this is incredible. How can that character justify his the way he abuses children rather than what the headline suggested, which was people were outraged it was on the television in the first place. So I'm not sure what you might have seen about the Sarah Lancashire one. But, yeah, I will get to that. So, yes, like I just said, there were there were 12. They haven't refilmed all of them. These were the idea of Nicholas Hitner, who was for a while the artistic director of the National Theatre, so has a history with Alan Bennett, obviously. And Kevin Loder, who is also a director, clearly... It, occurred to them that this was something you could film and be socially distanced because they are monologues. Mm -hmm. So, great idea. They weren't able to film all of them because two of them were originally done by Thora Heard, including what is probably the most famous of the talking heads, a cream cracker under the settee. Yes. But because of, of the rules around lockdown, they couldn't have anyone who was over the age of 70 involved in filming. Right. Dame Harriet Walter, thank God, is 69 and six months. So slipped in <laughs> under, uh, just underneath, limboed under that line in order to be in Soldiering On, which again, I will talk about in a bit.
1: Can we just have a moment for Thora Heard? I fucking love
0: Thora Heard. Yeah, she was amazing. She Sarah was used to get compared to Thora Heard a lot when she first started. <laughs> A lot. Which is
1: what what you want as a 29-year-old, isn't it? (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Us Southerners, we think all you Northerners are the same. We are the same. So there were two new ones. I've seen 10 of them. Sorry, Alan Bennett wrote two new ones? He wrote two new ones, yes. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, I don't think he wrote them specifically during lockdown. I think he had written them in the hope that they would have another Talking Heads at some point. Mm -hmm. One of which is the one with Sarah Lancashire, which is called An Ordinary Woman and the other one which you can see now on the iPlayer but if you're watching it on telly you won't have seen it it's called The Shrine and stars Standard Issue favourite Monica Dolan and is also very good the Sarah Lancashire one is about a woman who falls in love with her son which I think is what everybody has been up in arms about but of course it's not it is Primarily, but it's also about exactly the same stuff that all of the Talking Heads series are about, which is about loneliness. Even if you've got people around you, they're about loneliness. They're about social isolation. And in a lot of cases, they're about mental health. So how that all manifests itself in Sarah Lancashire's character is in that she develops a fixation with her teenage son which is apparently a thing that does happen.
1: I haven't seen it, obviously, but that is... I saw people being outraged that that was a thing. Particularly in lockdown seemed to come up quite a lot with with that reflecting a lot of teenage boys will have been under sort of house arrest with Mm. their parents, with their mums. So maybe it wasn't a good time to air it. I don't know. I think obviously relationships are very, very complicated. And while that doesn't sound like anything someone should condone, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And... It's like, I read Janet Ellis's book and her her latest novel, and it's about a woman being jealous of her daughter, which is as equally a destructive relationship. Yeah. And goes on to be a destructive relationship. But that would seem more acceptable, I suppose
0: yeah Fa- families
1: are fucked up is basically what I'm saying families are fucked
0: yeah up. I mean I've seen a lot of stuff saying it's about incest it's not about incest it's about incestuous feelings there is mm. a, a difference I mean it's not something that's acted upon in it I mean I don't know I don't have children but I so I can't say but what I can say is I think certainly women have talked about their son's in a different fashion than the way they've talked about their daughters. I think there is an element of worship of sons that, that has existed in the past. And if Alan Bennett has observed that, because Alan Bennett, and I will get to this, is the gr- one of the greatest observers of middle-aged women that I think has ever existed.
1: One of my ex-boyfriend's mums, I won't name them, but she showed me a picture of him when he was young. And I'd, I'd actually initially met him when we were both about 15. He was a bit older. Anyway, so it was a picture of him from that age. And she said, oh, look, wasn't he handsome? Isn't he handsome? And I was like, yeah, you did it. You know, he's lovely. And she just went to me because he wasn't in the room. She went, he's mine. He is. And it'll always be that way. And then just walked away. So there are clearly some odd relationships and ownership out there. So how that might spill over, I kind of understand.
0: A woman I won't name, but uh, obviously, but a woman once said to me, that it would be more upsetting for a mother to lose a son than it would be to lose a daughter. I actually oh, said that to me. Yeah. Wow. I know. I know. Anyway, let's move on from Sarah Lancashire, who, outside of everything you might feel about the plot, is magnificent, of onto course somebody she is. else who is totally magnificent, which is probably the other most famous of these, a woman of letters. Was originally played by Patricia Routledge and is now being played by Imelda Staunton. I don't know how many of them you remember, but it is about a spinster who lives, and I'm using that word deliberately, and I'm allowed to use it as an unmarried woman, who lives on her own in a house, basically writing complaints to people about stuff, and eventually gets caught up with the police because she writes complaints and begins to harass a family that live in her street. There's no spoiler alerts. This story has been in the public for 20 odd years. So I don't mind talking about it in a spoilery fashion, but in the end ends up in prison for what she's done. And in prison thrives in a way that she could never have done in the outside world. What she has is a mental health problem, Mm -hmm. which is exacerbated by social isolation. Um, and Imelda, Imelda Staunton is just absolutely tremendous in it. She really is. She's different, obviously. It's a different take than Patricia Routledge. Patricia Routledge is really forthright in it, whereas Imelda Staunton seems smaller. Even sort of in her phys- physicality, she seems more pushed inwards, less less focal. But then periodically, just this snap of real nastiness comes out of her. And yeah, she, it, she's absolutely tremendous, as is. Dame Harriet Walter, who is in Soldiering On, originally played by Stephanie Cole, who is a woman who is widowed and then finds out some stuff about her husband and her son. Eventually, her life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as as it goes on. And she's been a very popular, very sort of pillar of the community type person. And now she's incredibly isolated. And she is almost tremendous. In fact, I thought if there's one, if I could see the one positive of Succession being shut down, it's that Harriet Walter was available to do this because she she is also absolutely marvellous. And what I find interesting about, about these is that I watched these originally as a, uh, probably a teenager with the first bunch and then in my early 20s or mid-20s with the second bunch. And I thought they were great and I thought that, you know, like I say, Alan Bennett is just incredible. And Alan Bennett's influence is you can just see it throughout popular culture. You can see it in Victoria Woods. You can see it in Sally Wainwright. It's just the way that people talk in Alan Bennett things are just just blows my mind. It's the understatement. It's the saying something massive and not even breaking a sweat and then just carrying on to the next thing. But what I found really interesting about them is that the topics that, like, say, for example, A, a Lady of Letters and Soldiering Honour, is that as an adult, like a proper adult, having had lived some life now, I think they're even richer and even fuller because my mum's been widowed. I mean, obviously, she didn't discover stuff like that about my dad. But on the basic level of how she talks about widowhood and having seen my mum be a widow, it it hits home. And now, having lived on my own through lockdown and seen how really society judges spinsters the lady of letters one is even more powerful than it was and i think if you've seen bad reviews of it it's worth clicking on it and seeing the photo of the person who's written the review because the younger they are the worse the review they give of it
1: are you still writing those letters mate though because <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> no probably stop.
0: i want to move on to something else quickly uh, which is also something shot in lockdown which is staged six-part um, comedy starring Michael Sheen and David Tennant as themselves, shot over Zoom, maybe not Zoom, but certainly over video conferencing technology in which they are rehearsing a play. its It doesn't matter, but it's six characters in search of an author is what they're rehearsing and not doing a very good job of it. And it's kind of a little snapshot of what is going on in their lives, and by I say their lives, they are very much characters as opposed to themselves. Are they
1: exaggerated versions of themselves? I mean, it's like the trip. Totally different. Think
0: about the trip. Yeah, they are exaggerated versions of themselves. Other people in it, including David Tennant's wife, who is also an actress, and Michael Sheen's wife, who is also an actress. I mean, you could argue that that was nepotism, but you know, it helps if you've got people in the same house as you to be <laughs> to be on it. Also, Nina Sossiana is in it, and two cameo performances, both of which are very very funny by by very famous people who drop by in fact when one of them drops by it is an absolute gem it's the last episode tenant and uh, michael sheen are having a conversation on zoom and this person appears in the middle like they do when they crop up on a zoom call and they both just go oh fucking hell <laughs> and it's really <laughs> funny um, so yeah that's worth a watch because i initially didn't want to watch it because i was like it's bad enough that enough of my life exists now on zoom I don't want Zoom to be my fucking entertainment as well on the telly. Do you know what I mean? But actually, it works a lot better than I thought it would. Let's switch to something else, also on the BBC, that we have both watched, What We Do in the Shadows. I have things to say, but I've been saying a lot. So, Mickey, you go first. I'd just like to say, hooray! (laughs) Oh, what a
1: glorious ten episodes of silliness it is. I think it is... A marvelous watch, and it—I mean, I love silly humor, and I think it's very necessary at any point when you look outside the window at a world on fire. But I think particularly now, this very absurdist world that we are thrown into, is a great place to be. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I know. I know Hannah wants to say something that I absolutely agree with. So I'm going to leave that to you, Dunleavy. But I would just like to say that my favourite episode, episode five, called Colin's Promotion. Uh, <laughs> it's is, the best one. It's joyous. Uh, I love me a bit of energy vampire Colin Robinson, superbly played by Mark Prox. I think that's how you say it. Obviously, I don't like an energy vampire in real life because we have all met a Colin Robinson. And I think that is yeah. why I enjoy his character so much. He has given a name to our tormentors. And that whole episode where he is power hungry and gets absolutely overloaded on energy was a delight from start to finish. And they all get sort of spotlight episodes, I think, in this season. And they're excellent. Although I've got to say, in my slight negative, my only negative was the Matt Berry, Jackie Daytona episode was definitely my least favourite. Still a right Still a riot, but yeah, was was not my favourite. But I heart Colin Robinson. I think I'm going to get a T-shirt.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that episode reminds me a bit of the episode of Flight of the Concords, where Jermaine buys a new mug, which is a very simple thing. And then it leads to their entire lives spiraling out of control. And when Colin Robinson says at the start of that episode, I'm a bit worried about how my promotion is going to change the dynamic, you think that's ridiculous in the same way that you think when he goes, I can't really afford this mug, right? That you think that's ridiculous, how would it? And then it does just their entire lives spiral massively out of control.
1: Well, interestingly, the two episodes, the one in season one and the one in season two that focus on Colin Robinson are both directed by Jermaine Clement. He's clearly got a soft spot for that character.
0: Yeah. See, now I have a massive soft spot for Guillermo. That's my other T-shirt, yeah. Yeah, sure. I think Guillermo is really interesting. And I think because, obviously, Matt Berry, Natasha Dimitri, Kay Van Novak are all doing an amazing job. Superb. It is, and I, I do not use this word as an insult because it's what it requires. It is somewhat pantomimic. It is, they are big, they are huge characters and they take up much of the, most of the screen. But it's easy to forget that actually... This is allegedly a documentary that's being made. And actually, the POV character in the documentary is Guillermo. And this series absolutely just fucking rams that home. I think, apologies for my pronunciation of this, I think if it's Harvey Guillen, is just tremendous in it. And the best way to describe that is in his looks to camera.
1: When he breaks the fourth wall almost. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they're making a documentary, so he's looking at... at, In mockumentaries, looking at the camera as a tried-and-tested and and almost-now-hackneyed way. And what killed looking at camera was John Krasinski in The Office, because he just was the absolute fucking master of it. And Jim looking, just looking at the camera, and you won't be able to see this on the podcast, but just going... Like that, it was just a wonder. But Harvey Greeley seems to have reinvigorated it and the point of the whole point of this is if from a narrative to get boring about how stuff gets written characters need to be able to develop otherwise stuff gets boring eventually that's where that's why sitcoms and things like that run out of steam if it's just if they learn nothing and they you know the characters just get stuck in a loop of just doing the same thing over and over again But because they're all vampires, the only character that can possibly have any kind of personal growth in this is Guillermo. He's the only one that's capable of growth. And they really achieve it in this. And they achieve it in this by those looks to camera. Because at the start, what would happen was Nandor would say something offensive to him. And he used to look and he used to look really hurt. And then when he starts to become a bit more aware because he's got the outside eye on him, he starts to look a bit embarrassed that he was taking that off them. At the start of this, the episode where Hayley Joel Osment becomes a zombie, there's a look at the camera he does and he looks a bit annoyed. And then it goes on from there. And then he becomes full on livid. And he is not the same character he was at the start of this but it's a change that is achieved so subtly. I think it's brilliant. I think. He's well our entry the...
1: into it as well, isn't he? Because he's the human. Yeah. So he's yeah. who we can relate to. And as you were saying about, obviously, characters have to develop or it gets stayed. That we started with these vampires who are already like clearly bored of eternal life. They've, they've yeah. done everything. And, you know... I mean, apart from maybe whack off your own ghost, but we're going to get to that. And it's just, they've run out of things to do. So it has to to follow them. And his his normality, he's not normal. He's a vampire slayer. He's related to Van Helsing and he's trying really hard to fight it, but keeps accidentally killing vampires and is very good at it. Brilliant. But his normality actually serves as a brilliant foil to how absurd these grotesques are. It's great.
0: Yeah, I loved it. My only complaint would be with myself because I watched it too quickly and now I have another year to wait. Yeah,
1: totally Um, devoured it in two nights, I think.
0: Let's talk about the Salisbury Poisonings, three part drama series about the Novichok crises that hit Salisbury and the surrounding areas in 2018, obviously based on a true story. I want to start off by talking about something that I'm always, always, always banging on about on this and um, they never seem to repeat on the telly, so yet another request to have it repeated on the telly, which is Five Daughters, the BBC drama about the Ipswich murders, which entirely revolutionised the way stuff like this got written. Because in the old days, what would have happened, and by the old days, I mean not that long ago, what would have happened is this Novichok drama would have been about cops and spies what five daughters said was essentially it's way more interesting to look at a community it's a drama it's not a thriller it would have been a thriller in the old days but now it's a drama so what we get here is amory duff who is the director of public health for wiltshire whoever thought she'd have a anything written about her Rafe spall whose character is a um a police officer poisoned during the investigation we fucking love Rafe spall so great Mark Addy, who is a friend and a neighbour of the Scripples, who are the original people who are poisoned, the Russians who are poisoned. Darren Boyd and Nigel Lindsay, there are police in it. That's who they play. But they are very much on a back seat. They don't really drive the narrative particularly. And then Johnny Harris and Myanna Burling as Charlie and Dawn, who are a couple who unfortunately get wrapped up or get caught up in this. And eventually Dawn is actually the last, well, not the last, the only casualty of this is a person who was absolutely in no way involved or responsible or anything. I think all of those people I've named put in a really good performance. Obviously, I love Rafe Spall. I think Amory Duff does a very good every-woman role in it. But I do want to say that I think the prize, if indeed there is a prize for this sort of stuff, should go to Johnny Harris. And it's for one moment in particular, which is when he is at the funeral of Dawn. And obviously it's very complicated, the the fact, the, the story of Dawn. she's She's got problems with drinking. She's appears to have been homeless at points and her children aren't with her. They're in the care of other relatives. And he is her latest boyfriend and also... He is inadvertently responsible for her death by action, but not at all by intention. And he positions himself at the back of the funeral and her dad goes up and walks and brings him down to the front. And the look on Johnny Harris's face, which is kind of a combination of pride and relief. And I mean, pride in a good way, not pride in a bad way. In a kind of he feels proud to be included in this family. Mm-hmm. Not, not proud, and relief and sadness is, uh, is one of the best bits of acting you'll see all year, absolutely guaranteed, that moment. when And Johnny Harris doesn't usually get to play a sympathetic character, so it's nice to see him get to be unbelievably sympathetic. And what did you think about watching it post-Covid? Because I think it was weird, watching people go, but our shops are going to go out of business, knowing now what's gonna ha- what's happened to them. is is It makes it feel a bit like, eh...
1: We can't close for three days. (laughs) What are you talking about?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's nuts,
1: isn't it? I thought it meant that we watched it through a totally different lens. And I actually think think the BBC, the writers have done this very well. I think if it had been that original take on this that you were talking about earlier, that kind of thriller, that drama with a capital drama just shouted, it wouldn't have rung true anymore. But actually by focusing on the community, by people sort of, being reluctant but also realistic and taking this stuff on board and just going okay this is the new normal and adapting actually quite quickly despite their initial worry that it wouldn't be doable it felt very very reflective of the times that we live in and the authorities working their asses off behind the scenes what I thought was really interesting is Anne-Marie Duff's character uh, the chief of public health in Wiltshire wants to close down everything, she wants to stop absolutely everything and they have to draw a line and mm. they tell her we can't, we can't We can't dredge the river, we can't just do all of this stuff, life has to go on in some way, even if there is this risk, which we know there is. Yeah. And, I, you know, I kind of wish, well, I massively wish that our government had dealt with what's happening now in the same way that Salisbury dealt with... Nobichuk. Paula,
0: I can't pronounce her surname, but that's all right, because there's a joke in it that no one can pronounce her surname. I wish she'd been in charge of our, our COVID response in yeah. anyways. ways. But I did find, oddly, where it made that bit seem a bit like, uh, like not so stressful as it were, if I hadn't endured lockdown. The stuff about Ray Spall and his fear that he was in some way still toxic... That became way more relatable, I think, because the idea that there is this unseen thing and the idea that lots of us have had, that we deliberately chose not to break lockdown, unlike some people, we deliberately chose not to break lockdown and see our parents because we were worried about giving it to our parents. We were worried. We were worried that we had become the threat. Yeah. That I found that, exceptionally relatable and I don't know that I would have understood that before this
1: yeah because Nick Rafe Spall's character obviously as a copper a detective he's used to going in and taking control of everything and that is absolutely taken away from him when he gets really really sick but he's not worried for himself he's terrified he becomes terrified of his family Mm. and the threat he is to his family and I think yeah you're right, if we hadn't been going through what we've just been going through, what we're still going through, then it might have felt a bit overreactive. But actually, it's spot on, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I thought it was. Mm. I've always been a big fan of Rafe Spall, but just before we went into lockdown, we went to see him at the theatre. In oh, something... do you remember the... theatre, Hannah? Do you remember theatre? And what I find incredible is the last thing that I did in the real world was go to the theatre and see a thing called The Death of England. and it just the irony clacks and just screams at me every time I think about it Jen sorted Um,
1: those tickets out do you think she knew (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) yeah, maybe she did so we'll take a break and then I'm going to do less talking because Mickey's got some things to talk about Welcome back. Ordinarily, we'd have just gone for a cup of tea in a wee. We actually went for a whole weekend. I, all I did was drink tea and piss, Hannah. And just wait. I just sat here and waited for you to come back <laughs> on the Skype call for like four days. But it does mean we've managed to cram some other stuff in. There you go. Everyone gets a lesson in our time management. Let's talk about Netflix. Mickey, I believe you have watched series three or in the process of watching series three of The Sinner. I'd like to know what you think of it. Done it, mate. Finished it. Eating it right up with my eyes. So,
1: I really enjoyed season one and season two of The Sinner. I thought they were cracking. And in season three, it's sort of more of the same. Harry Ambrose, played by Bill Pullman, is our rumpled, emotion-hiding, self-harming detective. He doesn't play by the books, but my, can he get to the bottom of a mystery in, ooh, eight to ten episodes. Uh (laughs) I'm going to say at the top that Pullman is superb. He is harry ambrose and he invests this complicated character with nuance and warmth very sympathetic towards harry and that hasn't changed at all and the sinner has always been a why done it rather than a who done it so we're handed our criminal mind early doors matt bomer plays jamie burns a man who allows his friend to die and kills a couple of other people because well it turns out it's basically because he never quite got over his philosophy student days
0: that's it I actually watched about, I would say, three episodes of this. And the first time I heard the word Nietzsche, I stopped watching. So thought, I know what's going to happen at the end now. Well, <laughs> but there you go. There you go, indeed. Jamie's endless
1: monologues about radical philosophy. And they take up a lot of screen time. And it is mostly Nietzsche. They start off quite intriguing and they just wind up really, really boring. His argument that he's not a bad man, even though he's killed three people and plans to kill more just doesn't land i think we're supposed to find him sympathetic in the same way we find harry keeping everything buttoned up really relatable because don't we all have bad thoughts aren't we all sort of bad people trying to be the best we can well yeah maybe but he's just too reminiscent of the dull lecturing students i avoided like the plague at university and i studied philosophy so there are a lot of them about (laughs) uh yeah it's a bit of a damp squib that is basically my review of nihilism and indeed the sinner season three it's a bit of a damp squib It is worth saying, perhaps, that Gary watched it with me and he hasn't seen one or two and he really liked it. So possibly it's because it's nowhere near as good as what's been before that I found it quite disappointing, to be honest
0: with you. I'm with you because, like I say, first episode is always great because you're always like, how are they going to get out of this? And by get out of this, I mean make someone who's done something seemingly dreadful seem to have their reasons at the end. Not necessarily be sympathetic, but at least to have their reasons Mm. for having done it. And I saw it was Matt Bomer and I've only ever seen him in one other thing. Mentioned it before, which is the HBO version of The Normal Heart. Mark Ruffalo plays sort of a fictionalised version of Larry Kramer and he plays Larry Kramer's boyfriend in it. And he goes like full Christian Bale or... Michael Fassbender, as in, he loses a shitload of weight for it. Jared Leto, because, as
1: well. He was, he's yeah. big into that,
0: and it was a really good performance. And I thought he was uh, really good in it. So I was looking forward to this, and I thought it was, in many ways, I thought it was a genius piece of casting because Matt Bomer is so, what I'm going to call conventionally handsome. That
1: he's like a sexy like cuboid, isn't he? It's like a handsome
0: he's... Rubik's cube.
1: He's all angles.
0: But anyone who is that. And like I say, stereotypically, what, you know, I think if you ask a hundred women to pick a a, a handsome face, like... He's like a crime fit photo, handsome. Yeah, of handsome. Exactly that. Right. And then and they took all those bits together, put it together. You would make Matt Bomer's face. Mm -hmm. Only people who are that good looking can play characters that could either be a really nice guy caught up in a bad situation or a total psychopath. You know, the sort of thing that your mum would go, he's a dishy fella, isn't he? Dishy,
1: yeah. Dishy, yeah. up there with beefy for a description. Yeah, not meaning to objectify him. No, no, but what, technically what are seen as good-looking people tend to be able to get away with more. And that is something that is true outside of fiction.
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I just lost a bit of interest in it, I have to say. It, it just, it felt like it was going on and on and I haven't cut to any kind of <sighs> definition of the meat of it. And we were already, I think I think I was three episodes in, so I just gave up. And there's like at least 27 episodes, so at least
1: that's how it felt during <laughs> some of his monologues. And just, it didn't feel like when I was like, oh God, Jamie's going to start talking again, that he ever said anything new after about episode three. Yeah. But Bill Pullman's yeah. amazing.
0: Okay, thank you. Staying with Netflix. Two documentaries we want to talk about. I've watched both, you've only watched one, so we will concentrate on one. But let's start with... With Roll Red Roll, directed by Nancy Swartzman, made in 2008, based on the Stuberville High School rape case, which if you haven't heard of, you clearly haven't listened to this podcast enough, because we actually talked about it, I think, when we were talking about the O.J. Simpson documentary, maybe it's when we were talking about Aaron Hernandez documentary, where we were talking about just how how unbelievably toxic high school football is, and we talked about this case, and... It really is. In fact, I remember when it happened, my aunt who lives or one of my aunts who lives in America was in the UK when I first read about it. And I actually talked to her about it a lot because she lives in a small town in Alabama and football is big in Alabama. And I wanted to know what she thought would happen in her town if it had happened there. Because that's it. And I'm sure you're going to you're going to say this in more detail, but
1: football and sport in high school in America is also toxic for the town, not just for the yes. players. Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. Maybe we talked about it when we were talking about Friday Night Lights because that's the, basically the entire premise of Friday Night Lights is it fucks kids up, mm. high school football does. Anyway, what happened basically was a girl who was very drunk at a party, can't remember being at the party, was alerted by a friend that there was a video of her circulating of her being raped by members of the high school football team. And then what happened after that? I mean, it is a very good documentary. It's dark as fuck. Absolutely. I think where it works really well, and I'm going to talk very briefly about Mrs. America at the end, and that does a similar thing, is it reminds you that this isn't about men and women. This is about people with opinions of how women are. And the sad thing is a lot of women have those opinions as well. It's like in The Yorkshire Ripper documentary where that woman says oh a bad man's a bad man but a bad woman is a bloody bad woman there are young girls in this who actively blame the victim for being drunk and it staggers me that you don't even actually that you don't even need to watch the documentary you know what that town is if it's young girls are coming out parroting that stuff and it's really depressing to think that rather than control their sons this community has decided to restrict what their daughters can do that they have decided to say, well, don't drink. I've, to- I've told my daughter not to drink rather than I've told my son not to rape. It's, it's, it's an horrifying. interesting,
1: It's an interesting conversation that you must have to have with your kids. And, and obviously I am a child-free person talking to another child-free person here. But the conversation you would have with a daughter is very much how to keep yourself safe, that the onus we put on women is to, you know, look after yourself, try not to put yourself in dangerous situations even though that shouldn't be the onus the onus should be on men and boys not to do the raping but you have that because you feel protective towards your daughter i imagine or the 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 young girls the young women in your life but when you're talking to boys the mindset you have to go in is my son is capable of this and that must be harder i
0: think oh i would i would imagine so also, what's really interesting about this is how Anonymous came to be involved with this case and what happened when Anonymous became. And by Anonymous, I mean Anonymous with a capital A, with the face masks. Good,
1: because otherwise it was going to get really confusing.
0: Yeah. It very much, in 2014, I think this was, it very much became a proto Me Too movement. It caused a lot of women, and this is before Me Too, it caused a lot of women to publicly say, this has happened to me. Which I think, if you're looking for the positive of this, it may have reinforced the ideas of many people in that community, but it did genuinely change the mind of many people in that community. Yeah, I mean, obviously it is without a victim or her family, because obviously... Why would she want to go over that again just so I could understand her experience a bit better? No, thank you. So it feels like something at the centre of it is missing. The case has to become the centre of it rather than the victim be the centre of it. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very interesting. Almost on exactly the same theme but sort of not is Athlete A, which is by Bonnie Cohen and John Schenk. And tells the frankly horrifying story of how Dr. Larry Nassar was allowed to continue. And I use the word continue because I mean he abused girls even after people knew he was abusing girls. He was allowed to continue. And it's kind of doubly horrifying on the one front. It's horrifying that it happened to these girls and that nobody did anything to stop it. But it's also horrifying that of what really allowed this to happen. And that was a culture of bullying that went on at USA Gymnastics that basically dropped those girls' self-worth and morale to such a level that this guy was able to take advantage of that and become, oddly, seemingly an ally to them. A lot of them thought that he was a nice guy even while he was abusing them, which blows my mind. But, I mean, amazing women in this. Genuinely amazing women. The women that stood up. The women in the police that pushed the case. The women in courts. But, fucking hell, what a shower of charlatans were running USA Gymnastics. And what I will say is a really great reminder of the importance of local newspaper. Because the Indianapolis Star, if they hadn't picked up this story, no fucker would have. And it'd still be happening today, I think.
1: Yeah, it's like Spotlight and the Boston Globe. Uh, yeah the local newspapers and what a shame that they are absolutely being caught up and burned and not taking notice of anymore when they do uncover these incredible stories so larry nassau got away with sexual abuse for more than 20 years and abused more than 500 girls and women i mean if it wasn't so fucking horrific it'd almost be impressive it's like oh well done you know it's like that, that scale of stuff
0: there's a bit in it where they say including seven olympians
1: Nine, nine Olympians. Don't do him down,
0: Hannah. Nine Olympians. I mean, including Simone Biles. And if you were going to protect anyone, you would protect the ones that were bringing fucking medals home for the country. I'm not saying that that's how it should work, but even in this twisted idea that they have of of what this, of USA Gymnastics was, you think they'd at least protect the ones that were bringing home the medals, but they didn't protect anyone. Sorry, continue. What I really... I mean, it's it's a hard watch, but what I
1: found compelling was that the victim stories are very much central, and Bonnie Cohen and John Schenk don't do what a lot of documentaries do, which is is give you a backstory on NASA that might make you feel any sort of sympathy for him at all. There's very little detail about him, and I, I thought that was brilliant and to be applauded, and so... We we talked to Maggie Nichols, who was known as Athlete A, and her family. Rachel Den Hollander, who was the first person to come forward and, and point the finger at NASA. Jessica Howard, 2000 Olympian Jamie Dansher. All these amazing women who get shit from from beginning to end. So they get shit with the abuse that Bella and Marta Caroli, I think that's yeah. how you say it, were giving them as coaches and like you say, knocking them down, telling them they're fat some physical violence just they were never good enough which made them much more malleable for nasa and then they get the shit when they come forward and then they're still getting shit when they go to court but my favorite piece of this trial and this this documentary and it was i think we spoke about it when it happened and it seems weird to have a favorite bit of something like this when it is so appalling but judge rosemary aquilina Saying that these hundreds of victims could come forward and face to face if they wanted to tell their story to NASA in that courtroom. It is so powerful and so moving to see these women reclaiming their power that was taken away from them. And supporting each other. Oh, it's I I was I'm not ashamed to say I was a bit teary. And also it reminded me and I went and looked this up afterwards because I thought it was true. But during that trial, Nassar actually asked if he could sit out when they were telling their stories because he was finding it too emotionally distressing. And the judge said, fuck no, mate. In you go. You're going to sit and listen to this.
0: It's staggering. As the documentary goes, I need to say a couple of things. I'd actually think of the two of them. The better documentary style is Roll well, Red Roll. Well, I found the reconstructions of meetings at the Indianapolis Star that really weird. <laughs> weird and stagey and it really threw me and there were bits of it that I just thought why have they done it like that I know things are bad at newsrooms but they're literally the only three people who appear to be working at that newspaper <laughs> it was it was odd at points but the central story of course is so powerful that that stuff becomes an irrelevance I think I also did a little cheer when Steve Perry, president of
1: USA Gymnastics, who prioritized the protection of this lucrative brand using young girls and their bodies, USA Gymnastics, as a marketing tool over addressing these complaints through proper public channels time and time again. They had files of accusations against various coaches, which is how they st- the Indianapolis Star started digging into Nassau because they published something about some past coaches, and then Rachel Den Hollander came forward and said, you probably want to look at him as well. When he got charged, (laughs) because he just sits there and pleads the fifth, and I was livid. So I was just really pleased that actually justice was served there, and he he did get charged. But the complicity across the board is horrifying. Just We see it time and time again. These men with power and money just subsuming any sort of humanity. And this Mm. was towards children. Oh, it was... Yeah, And he but,
0: did, um, you sent it to me in uh, in a message when you were watching this. He did a Harvey Weinstein, didn't he? he? He he did a little limp.
1: He got a limp and that could, I think I said, and his fucking limp can fuck off. <laughs> so I was feeling yeah. particularly eloquent.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they're both on Netflix. One more documentary that's on, which is worth mentioning, it's on been on Channel 4. I have watched some of it. I haven't got around to watching all of It, it is Murder in the Car Park, which is about one of the, most notorious unsolved murders in this country currently the murder of private investigator daniel morgan which has never been solved loads and loads of people being interviewed everyone has to be very very careful because obviously you know some of those people that are interviewed possibly are the person that that murdered daniel morgan See, I'm going to have to be very careful about what I say. Some of those people, I think, why are you even interviewing this person? Because I don't believe a single word that comes out of their mouth. But by not interviewing them, the question would then be, why didn't you interview them? So it becomes quite complicated. But what I will say, Alistair Morgan, people might well know from Twitter because he's very active. His brother seems to be a genuinely very, very nice man. And I feel very sorry for that family because I actually know some people who have a son that was murdered and they never found out who did it and that's an incredibly painful thing for a family to go through so well done channel four for at the very least bringing that murder back up again because even if 30 years later everybody else doesn't care there are still very much people who do and it's good to give them a voice
1: it's it's you know as embodied by unforgotten I've got one more thing to say, and it's very quick,
0: so I don't know if you've got anything else that you haven't talked about, Mick.
1: I rewatched Ava DuVernay's 13th, and oh. it's still incredible. We'd just like to report back that it is still <laughs> absolutely vital viewing, with some cracking tunes as well. Just the style of it, as well as the content is, it's so watchable and so good. And I've also returned to watch Community, so that's why I haven't watched anything
0: new. I'm sorry, not sorry. I watched Good Omens, finally. Oh, was it Partly because... um, Because of Staged? Because of Staged, because we were talking about Staged just 20 minutes ago and I managed to have... Yes, I finally got around to watching it and also because I've got Amazon at the moment. It's only six episodes, so it's quite easy to watch. Based on Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett's co-operation book. That's not the right word, but anyway, there we go. Co-authored? Co-authored, yes, that's the word. About... The end of the world and a angel who is played by Michael Sheen and a devil, a demon who is played by David Tennant teaming up to attempt to stop the end of the world. I mean, it's very Neil Gaiman. If you like that stuff, it's very easy to watch. Quite often, just small vignettes that sort of stitch together to make the bigger picture. It's got loads of great people in it. Francis McDormand is the voice of God. John Hams there. David Morrissey crops up briefly. So yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch. And at the end, it has a cover of "A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square" by Tori Amos. That I didn't realise I needed in my life until I heard it, and then I thought, "Oh fuck, that's lovely." So if you watch to the end, you get that as well. And the last thing to say is Mrs. America started last night on British television, which hasn't really given us any time to see or think about it. So we will definitely talk about it next time because it will still be on next time. I've seen three episodes, so everybody knows if you haven't watched it. It's currently on the BBC. It is an FX story about... The passage of the ERA in America, which is the Equal Rights Amendment, which was initially supposed to go through quite simply, but then some conservative women, conservative with a small c, led by an activist called Phyllis Schlafly, clashed with the leading feminists of, or some of the leading feminists of the time, including, obviously, Gloria Steinem who is played by Rose Byrne. Shirley Chisholm, who actually deserves a TV series of her own. Shirley Chisholm was the first woman to run in the Democratic primary. Uh, She did that in 1972, and she was also the first black person ever to run in either primary. And she's played by Uzo Aduba from Oranges of the New Black. And the episode about her is directed by Amra Santi. So, I mean, this is all adding up to sound... Really great. Margot Martindale's there.
1: It's Phyllis played by Kate Blanchett, is that right?
0: Yes, uh, Kate Blanchett plays Phyllis Schlafly. Elizabeth Banks is in it. I love a bit of Elizabeth Banks. And John Slattery is playing Phyllis's husband. Also, Tracy Ullman is there as Betty Friedan who wrote The Feminine Mystique. It reminds me a little bit, and not necessarily in quality, but I'm not saying it's bad, but it reminds me a little bit of David Simon stuff, in which it's like, I'm not going to fucking tell you the answers. If you want to know who this person is, Google it. So maybe if you're not that hot on 70s feminism and you don't know that much about it, you might be going, who is that supposed to be? Or not realize, for example, that that's supposed to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But from what was I saw, it before she was notorious. <laughs> yeah, but from what I saw, I, I definitely liked it. After the assassination of Martin Luther King, so that's April 1968 till Watergate, which would have been 1974 until the, until Nixon stood down in '74, was like fucking wild in American politics. Absolutely crazy. The civil rights activists. There was like the Black Panther movement. There was uh, an anti-war movement. Obviously, Nixon was doing what the fuck he likes in power. And in all of the middle of this, women were trying to get women abortion and trying to get the Equal Rights Act passed. And they were told the same thing that everybody else is being told that now's not the time. So I think it's going to be really I think it's going to be really interesting where it feels like it's on the nose for the moment is there's a lot of talking about what the other side thinks without actually listening to what the other side thinks. And if it, there's a lesson in history, there's a lot of people saying, oh, you know what these feminists want? And then them saying it. And you're like, no, that's no, that's not at all what they're saying, for fuck's sake. People willfully misunderstanding feminism is not a new thing, and this is what this reminds me of. And then next time, I can tell everyone my story about what happened when I met Gloria Steinem. Excited. she
1: won't stop I mean it might be the first time she tells you a lot but she won't <laughs> fucking stop wanging on about it and I'm well jealous
0: well funnily enough uh, somebody did once recently say to me oh I'd love to have met Gloria Steinem and I went me too and then I went oh fuck I actually did yeah it was me who said that you <laughs> fuck nut <laughs> so, Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box.